Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with uh, Taryn Sobel-Smith and the Linfield College Archives, the Oregon Wine History Archive. It's uh, April 14, 2015. We're here at Yamhill Valley Vineyards with Stephen Carey, the winemaker here. And Stephen, our first question, which we always ask everyone to start off with, is why wine? I've thought about this quite a bit, actually. And my degree is in radio and television news. Um, and then I served in the U.S. Navy as an aviation officer and I enjoyed a lovely tour to a place called Vietnam. <laughs> and I grew disillusioned during that time with the all-consuming aspect of American culture. And I decided that when I got out of the Navy, I didn't want to have a normal nine-to-five American job that was intended simply to accumulate wealth. So I went looking for something more interesting, and I found wine. I spent 17 years selling it in various modes. And then I realized that I, what I really wanted to do was make it. So that's how I got into wine. Was there a particular moment or reason why, why, how did you, how did you find it when you say you found it? Was it just something you enjoyed? When I got out, I was uh, starving to death as a freelance photographer and writer. And some friends here in Oregon, Howard and Karen Hinsdale, had started a distribution company that was dealing with fine wines for really the first time in Oregon. And I spent a lot of time with them. I grew up with Howard, so I spent a lot of time with them. And I got to know their wines. And I, I really liked wine. And since I was starving, they suggested that I take a job in the wine business. And I did. And I was, because of them, I <laughs> interviewed at uh, Sun River Lodge in Central Oregon and became the first wine steward there. We called them wine stewards in those days. We didn't know how to say sommelier, and we hadn't abbreviated it to psalm yet. So that was it. It was uh, through, through friends and getting to know wines. And once I got into it, it was quite extraordinary. The, the chef and I had dinner together and ate off the menu every night. We drank from the cellar whatever we wanted. The waitresses would go home with me sometimes, and I thought, you know, I'm working five hours a day and making quite a bit of money. This is, this is kind of a good life. <laughs> I've been in the wine business ever since. A nice, a nice there's, debut. There's been a lot more work involved at times, and it's not always quite that idyllic, but it was a good start. So what was it like being here for the kind of beginning of the modern Oregon wine industry? It was exhilarating, actually. It was... Uh, headier than we realized at the time. We didn't, I knew that there was something special happening with the young guys, the, the, the guys who are just getting started with the wine industry, but I was also training in the old world of wine. So I, I, what I was realizing was just how good Oregon wines are, and particularly the Pinot Noirs from the get-go, from the very early days, they were really good. Richard Summers Rieslings from down at Hillcrest, they were really good. And I was drinking the wines from all over the world at the time. Mm -hmm. Realized that these were world standards, or the, these were world-class wines pretty much from the get-go. So that was, that was heady. And it was also the realization that Oregon was unknown. And, and these guys who had no money and were building this industry, uh, that was a remarkable event. Mar remarkable time in our industry. Realizing that the giant next door called California was going to eat us alive if we didn't do things like band together and learn how to make Pinot Noir in a hurry, share our knowledge, share our experiences. All of that was critical in the early days of this business. There were no deep pockets in this industry. Zero. 
there weren't any medium deep pockets. <laughs> People were lucky they had pockets. <laughs> it was. So it's a remarkable time to think that these people had that vision, that energy, and that enthusiasm, that passion to say, we don't care what the odds are against this. Pinot Noir is just too good to hold back, and we're going forward. I believe that that set the tone. The early guys, early growers, they set the tone that has driven us to where we are today, which is recognized worldwide. Do you feel that the people who were here early on, do you feel that they were, uh, was there something special about them or was it that they, right place, right time? Or was there a certain spirit that they had that kind of saw the future or a combination of both? This ground, this, this valley, this climate has been waiting for somebody to come along and jump on it for a million years. <laughs> Yes, they were the right people at the right time because they were intelligent, passionate, hardworking, and resilient. So the door was open. No one had walked through it. It's not quite true. It turns out that in reading some of the historical information at the Oregon Historical Society, mm -hmm. there's a possibility that Pinot Noir was planted in this valley in the 1880s. Of course, all that went away with prohibition. But in all likelihood, this is not the first time Pinot Noir has been planted in this valley. It's the first time that it's been successfully developed. Uh, those early guys were commendable. Those very early guys were mm -hmm. commendable. And there is a wonderful quote in the, in the minutes of the Historical Society from back in about 1902 mm -hmm. that said the people who come now will benefit from the knowledge that those who came earlier have gained and are willing to share with them. They will not have to make the same mistakes and they will be able to move forward much more quickly. And it was written 115 years ago. Yeah, that could have been written in the, in the 60s too. It could be written today. Thing. Right. Could be written today. That's amazing. Um, so you mentioned that you did wine sales for a while and then decided to be a winemaker. How, how did that move happen? How were you able to make that transition? Mm. I, I spent a couple of years in hospitality as a psalm in Oregon, then down in California, and then out in Colorado. And, and at the end of that last season, I came back here and went to work for Henny Hinsdale Wine Distribution seemed like a logical move, and I, I was missing Oregon. I'm a native, and I was missing home. So I came back and went to work in, for a distributor, where I was the education director, the wine buyer, and a salesman, and a delivery guy. We did everything, <laughs> janitor. Uh, and I did that for eight years, based out of Salem, and then a friend of mine came to me a guy with a lot of foresight in this industry, Bill Nelson, who, mm -hmm. you know that name. Mm -hmm. Bill was a friend, is a friend, and he suggested that it was time for somebody to open a company that acted as a marketing agent for Oregon wines outside of Oregon. Mm -hmm. So I took his advice to heart and I started a company called Carry Oregon Wines. And it was my job to introduce a whole bunch of brands, about 15 of them. Ponzi, Bethel Heights, Erath, Yamhill Valley, to the rest of the country. And so I did that for nine years. And I was, I'd grown quite tired of it. I um, probably didn't set the business up properly, so it was not very profitable. We were working like dogs and not making much money, if any. And I was very tired of people telling me that they didn't need any Aragon wine. <laughs> <laughs> the, the arrogance, particularly in the East Coast, was just depressing. And after a while of just telling, having people tell me that, you know, these are pretty good. They're, you know, these PNRs are pretty good. They're, they're about as good as Beaujolais. I, I was getting a belly full of it. 
And I said, well, I'm going to get out of this business. And the owners here, Dennis Berger and David Henricks, uh, I had been selling their wine. And they said, well, we need a winemaker. They had been making the wines. They're professors in, in Portland in biomedical industry. <laughs> um, and they had been using all of their holidays to make wine and all their weekends to make wine, grow grapes. And after eight years, they were ready for somebody to become a winemaker. So they said, well, Stephen, we'll hire you as a winemaker. We'll teach you how to make wine if you'll help us with marketing. I had been making wine for eight years at that time as an amateur, but very serious amateur, three French oak barrels in my basement kind of amateur. <laughs> So I came here in 91 as the winemaker in training. And after a couple of weeks, Dennis said, well, Stephen, you know how to make wine. You just don't know how to run the press and the pumps and all the big equipment. So here's how you do that. And he was gone. <laughs> and that was 24 years ago. So at that point, after a harvest, I knew that I should be a winemaker. I was meant for this. Just felt right. It feels right. It's still to this day, it feels right. And, and part of the reason it feels right is because we'll never get it right. We will never make a perfect wine. But we're sure as hell going to keep trying. Um, so we we talked. To, we've obviously we've talked to many winemakers around the area, and everyone kind of has a different idea on on how to make, like you said, how to strive for the perfect wine. Do you have a winemaking philosophy? I believe that the grapes talk to me. And they don't speak very loudly. In fact, they kind of whisper behind my back. <laughs> but they're basically trying to tell me how to deal with them. And every block of land in this valley, in this county, on this estate, there are 14 blocks of Pinot Noir. Every one of them is different. They act differently. So I think as a young winemakers, we come to a project with the idea that we're going to formulate the wines into my style, into this style. And with time, you back away from that feeling and you come to the realization that the grapes are telling you what to do. And if you listen hard enough, you make the best wines. I didn't have that feeling in 91 when I made my first harvest here. I had made wine from this property in 89, and I had treated it rather roughly. <laughs> and it was fabulous. But it was the vintage. It wasn't the winemaking. Well, I applied the same technique to the vintage in 91. And in one block in particular that I set aside and treated like a re it was going to be a reserve. Mm -hmm. So uh, <clears throat> I macerated the living bejesus out of it and left it on the skins for 45 days. And it just got more and more tannic. Now what's supposed to happen is the tannins are supposed to evolve and agglomerate so that the mouthfeel becomes softer with more time on the skins. And that may have been happening, but there was still this ongoing addition of tannin to the point that the wine was undrinkable for nine years. <laughs> it became quite wonderful, but it took nine years to get there. And that's not a real good idea from a marketing perspective. So now I would say that what I've learned here, what we've learned here, is that these grapes need to be handled very gently. Uh, that this is not the same as the Dundee Hills. It's not the same as the Eola Amity Hills. It's not the same as any of the other Appalachians. There is some correlation with Shehalem Mountain or Yamhill Carlton more specifically. And it took me a long time to realize that I think the difference is that this is primarily marine sedimentary soils. Those areas are primarily volcanic. Mm -hmm degraded basalt soils. What's well, a huge difference? Our wines want to give us more tannin. 
more earthy characters, more pigment. So everything that I've learned from the guys in Dundee, I basically have to reverse here. I say, well, that, that sounds great. If I was making wine from the Dundee Hills, I'd follow you guys right down that path. But I've tried doing that here, and it didn't work. So we, we were the only vineyard in the McMinnville AVA. We were the second vineyard. We were the only winery in the AVA for about 14 or 15 years. And it took me a while to realize that I simply had to look at this area differently. Mm -hmm. I went and got the USGS maps, uh, the geological maps, and put a shovel in the ground, more importantly, realized that the maps weren't accurate. <laughs> and the government can't put a shovel in every square meter of Earth. But the, the concepts that, that the early maps had we're pretty much off the mark. And we are, we do have extrusion and intrusive basalt on this 100 acres. But most of it is deep water marine sedimentary soils. And they create a different kind of Pinot Noir. Hmm. The temperature's not that much different here from Dundee. We get a little bit less rain. We get a little bit less rain than McMinnville. Don't think that's very important. There are slight temperature differentials, but <clears throat> we bud break 10 days, two weeks behind the Dundee Hills. And it took me a long time to realize that that's probably not related to air temperature, but more likely related to soil temperature. Hmm. The plant starts to move in the spring when you reach about 50 degrees Fahrenheit average, day night. But it's not air temperature. It's soil temperature that's important. And since these marine sedimentary soils have even more clay than basaltic soils, they hold on to water longer in the springtime. And water warms up more slowly than just dirt. It took me years to figure this out. Again, I think that's a lesson that should be shared is that your site's trying to talk to you. Mm -hmm. You have to listen to it. You have to try to figure it out. If, you're, if your wines don't taste like the ones across the street or five miles away, then why don't they? Particularly if you know you're making the wines the same as wine B or C or D or E. So again, it's time with the same fruit, year in and year out. Time walking the same dirt and just getting a feel for what's happening in your terroir. There is no substitute for that experience. Do you find yourself, do you find that the kind of detective part of it, does that appeal to you? You talk about going to the USGS maps, you talk about kind of working out those kind of mysteries. Does that appeal to you? Is that something that you would have known you would be excited by? I think wine is uh, both art and science, and I love both sides of it, so yes. I, I find that detective work probably well said, by the way. <laughs> um, yes, I find that enormously stimulating intellectually to try to figure out what's going on out there. There's no big sign that comes on and blinks and says yes, no. It's, it's all those years of, this is a lot like the year X. So how do we treat X and how are the wines? How should we modify that for this year? Uh, and after 24 years of experience, we have a pretty good handle on which sites are going to give us the, the fruit we like the most, how to treat them in the, in the fermenter, in the winery, how to treat them in the vineyard, how to grow them perhaps a little differently. There are cooler areas, there are warmer areas, there are areas where the soil is very thin and dries out in the summer, they need irrigation. There are areas where the soil is deep and rich has plenty of water, doesn't need irrigation. So we don't have a blanket plan for the winery. We don't, we don't irrigate everything, but we do irrigate some. We don't prune everything exactly the same way because the experience with, and again, that's just within this hundred acres. Amazing. It's complex stuff. And, and that is a wonderful part of the challenge, again, if the beer tasted the same every day, I wouldn't enjoy making it. 
I like the whole idea that the vintages are going to be different. And it's a chess match to <laughs> figure out if we can put our experience and intellect to work and come up with the best expression of this place. I don't want it to taste like the Dundee Hills. I want it to taste like the best that Yamhill Valley can be. We're unique, but every vineyard is in fact unique. Even if I told you exactly how I made a gold medal winning wine, if you didn't have my dirt, you're not going to make that wine. Sure enough. <laughs> um, you mentioned earlier uh, Bill Nelson. Um, talk about your relationship with some of the early winemakers and grape growers in the area, and that could be area as general as, or as specific as you want it to be. I met David Lett when I was a sommelier at uh, Sun River, so that was a long time ago. And I put Richard Summers, Hillcrest Riesling on the wine list there, <clears throat> and IRE Pinot Noir. So I'd, I've known those guys since 1975. Shortly after, I would have met Dick Ponzi and Dick Erath and Sokol Blossers and Bethel Heights before long and Myron for sure at Amity, uh, Bill Fuller at Tualatin, Harvey Schaefer. Uh, the folks at um, Oak Knoll, the Volstecks, uh, the folks at and the Campbells. Mm -hmm. Elk Cove. Uh, at Elk Cove, for sure. And all of that community ran into itself all the time because <laughs> there weren't 580 wineries, and there were 30 or 40. I, it's a little difficult, and you, you can probably help me here from the archival sense of our bonded winery number here is 104, but I don't know how many were retired prior to, say, Irie. I think that Erath was something like 52, but it's hard for me to imagine that there's 50 between Erath and us. Now, there might be, but I think there might have been some retired in between also, some that came and went or whatever. But it's an ongoing challenge of ours to determine that too. Yeah, it's, it's, that's probably it's a, a good it's, one. It's a mess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the state records are probably not very good. Yeah. Well, we were 104, but I swear there weren't 35 wineries in business when we started in '83. So we're in the second wave. Mm -hmm. First wave was uh, up to about 1980 or 1981, and then there was a second wave after that. So we're early. You know, early enough that. If you had a wine growers association meeting, you met everybody. <laughs> you, they, they were all there. And I just had a curiosity about what people were doing, so I'd go and visit too. Particularly when I was selling uh, as Cary Oregon wines, I wanted to know everything that everybody was doing. So I spent a lot of time in the vineyards, in the wineries. And people were pretty open to that, letting you just? Absolutely. Yeah, that, it was pretty obvious that, you know, we're, we're up against steep odds as an industry that A, nobody knew what Pinot Noir was, and B, they certainly didn't know what that state north of California was called. Washington? It was extraordinary, the lack of knowledge when I first started going to New York in 1983, 1984, and the first sold wines there. People were quite certain that it was somewhere on the other side of the Hudson River, but they weren't sure where. And they were quite certain that the Native American uprisings were common and that we didn't have trains or planes. And paved roads. Paved roads, no. Lived in teepees and tents. <laughs> yeah. It took a little while. But again, the wines, you know, we think about the struggle to develop. And we think, well, it must, been, must be related to the quality of the wines, that as the quality got better, the wines sold better. The fact was, early Pinot Noirs were really good. They were already really good. And that's because David Lett and Dick Ponzi and Erath and the rest of those Sokol Blossom folks, those, they put the right grape in the ground. And it's the right ground for that grape. So they, we didn't have to have 50 years of experience to make good wine. We're making better wine today, but we made good wine then. And when really objective wine buyers in Chicago and New York would take a hard look, particularly if I could feed it to them blind. Mm -hmm. And the wine showed off right from the start. 
you know, those late 60s, but certainly early 70 Pinot Noirs. They were good wines, really good wines. Okay, but one more question for you on my part, and then I'll turn you over to Taryn for the second half. And my question is, a, it's a broad one, so it's a biggie. Um, you've been in the wine industry in Oregon now for, for quite a while. What have you, how have you observed it evolve in the time? What are the changes you've noticed for better or worse? And mostly it's for better, yeah, or at least evolution without degradation. The wines have gotten better. The industry has gotten bigger. It's become respected. It's gotten richer. Some of newcomers are not particularly good neighbors. The vast majority of them are wonderful contribution to the industry and happily invited as members of the fold. We, we had the very good fortune of getting the Druins to invest with us back in 87. And, it, and they have been fabulous community members. Not everybody since then has been that perfect, but the vast majority are still folks I'd be very happy to sit down to dinner with. Um, with 580 wineries or 600 wineries or 560, whatever the number is today, and I have to look at my watch to have a <laughs> clear idea of what that might be. Of course there's going to be different personalities and different views of what the industry is all about. But overall, I still see and feel that passion for Pinot Noir driving um, an industry that from an economic perspective is healthier than it's ever been. Uh, there's actually a few people making money, <laughs> which is a strange concept in this business when you're starting out. I, I hear some complaints from some of the old timers about things aren't like they used to be, and I tend to disagree. I tend to think that these are the best times we've ever seen, and we're just, we're in a golden age, and it's continuing. This is... This is a great place to be making wine. And the industry has done a good job of hanging on to uh, the perspectives, like <clears throat> the label laws and the strict growing and making regulations that we put upon ourselves all those years ago. They've not been rescinded to make it easier to sell suspect wine. Quality is high even in this day where you can find a $12 Pinot Noir once in a while. You don't see a lot of them. Most of the wines are, are good or great. So I see the industry as remaining true to the objectives that the early guys set out. Again, let's go back to David Adelsheim for helping get everything organized. The Ponzi and David Ladd and Erath and Bethel Heights and lots of other folks who, who set out to make sure that the industry remained true to itself and respected. And I believe that that remains accomplished. So I would say this is a great time for the Oregon wine industry and getting better. This is part two of the interview with Stephen Carey conducted by Rich Schmidt and Darren Sobel Smith at Yenho Valley Vineyards on April 14th, 2015. So now we've been kind of shifting from the domestic um, development of Oregon wine to kind of the relationship between Oregon and the rest of the world. Um, and you've kind of alluded to it before, but what makes Oregon wine different or special from the rest of the world's? Terroir. The combination of soil, climate, everything that goes into a broad view of Tewa. Um, you know, you can take a very narrow view of what that means, literally Earth, but to the, most of the Burgundians that I've spoken with, it, it is much more expansive than that, and I agree with a much more expansive view of it, which would be everything from the soil makeup to how you farm it, 
how you plant it, what clones you put in it, what kind of trellising you do. Do you irrigate, don't you irrigate? What's your spacing? Um, how you make it would be included in the broadest view of terroir. But certainly, sunshine, rainfall, precipitation, temperature, soil makeup, there is no other place like this valley. I follow Pinot Noir around the globe. It's uh, my passion, it's my mistress, my addiction, if you will. And there, and there is not another place that tastes like the Willamette Valley. And there's not another place that tastes like Yam Hill Valley vineyards. So it is <clears throat> these microcosms within the bigger picture here in this valley. They're particularly well suited to <clears throat> making a, a range of Pinot Noirs, all of them very good and all of them different from what would come from those few cool valleys in California that make good Pinot Noir, from New Zealand, where they make fine Pinot Noir, Tasmania, maybe parts of the Mornington Peninsula in Australia, Walker Bay in South Africa, or the village of Hermanus. Those areas are all known for Pinot Noir, and none of them taste like this valley. So. It is the uniqueness, and, and I use that word, and by the way, I, I, I have a pet peeve about that word. Uniqueness means one of a kind, so it requires no adjectives. There's no such thing as very unique or kind of unique. It's simply unique. This valley is unique. It's one of a kind, and the wines are one of a kind. And when you began to market the wine to places such as New York, um, were you trying to market those qualities to believe that you know, Oregon had something to contribute to the rest of the industry? Or it could have also been maybe economic purposes to try to expand um, economic development of Oregon wine? We were trying to survive. We were making more wine than Oregon would drink. And besides that, people in Oregon didn't know how good the wines were. You take the wines to a restaurant in Portland, take a fine Oregon Pinot Noir from Dick Ponzi or David Lett or Bethel Heights or Yam Hill Valley Vineyards to a restaurant in Portland, and they'd look down their nose at it, except for people like Bill McLaughlin at LaBerge who understood Oregon Pinot Noir. Most of them didn't. They saw it as a, a local wine of limited value. And it wasn't until, so we had to have more markets. So the job, my job to carry Oregon wines was to open up new states, new distributorships around the country to expand the sale of Oregon wines because it wasn't going to all sell here. Interesting thing is that once it did become established in places like New York and Chicago, then Portland bought it like crazy. All of a sudden, it was credible. It was amazing how much winning an event in New York, how much impact it had on restaurant sales in Portland. It turned around and said, became very proud of what we grew here all of a sudden. And that happened very quickly. Between the Gomio tasting in, in Paris and then repeated in Burgundy in 79, and then the um, Oregon Burgundy Challenge in New York City in 85, those two events changed the reception for Oregon wines in Oregon. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit about what the process was like to initiate the Burgundy Challenge? <laughs> yes, I'd, I'd been on the road for uh, some years selling wines, selling Oregon wines to people all over the country, but primarily trying to hit the big markets on the East Coast and Chicago as the best candidates. <clears throat> and I was at the International Wine Center in New York City I was talking to the director and showing him some Oregon wines. And he said, well, these are pretty good. These are, these are like good Beaujolais. That's literally where that comment comes from. Al Hodgkins is no longer with us, bless his soul, but he was a great fan of Burgundy and a great fan of Pinot Noir. He would grow to love Oregon Pinot Noir. But at that time, he didn't see it. So I said, well, I think I, I, I'd been, like I said, I'd, I'd been hearing the same sort of thing for some years, and I'd had a belly full of it. And I said, well, these are a lot better than Beaujolais. And if we tasted these blind with Burgundy, 
you'd see that. And he said, you don't want to go there. And I think Myron may have been standing over my left shoulder at the same time. And, and I just looked him in the eye and I said, yeah, we do. And we have no desire to go head on with Burgundy because those people have been very kind to us and helping us as an industry develop. Been very helpful knowledge-wise. But this was one shot at organizing a tasting of Oregon and Burgundy to let the snobs know that in fact Oregon was making really fine Pinot Noir. So the idea grew and it, I certainly took it out of my own hands and turned it over to the Oregon Wine Board, OWAB at that time, um, because it made sense for the whole state to be involved and not just the people that I represented, not the 15 wineries that Cary Oregon Wines represented, but it should have been an Oregon event. And so it was, they took the idea and they developed it. And the board um, eventually hired uh, the International Wine Center to put on a tasting. And the tasting was uh, of 1985 Pinot Noirs from Burgundy and, and from Oregon. How were um, the wineries in Oregon recruited, the ones that were competing? <clears throat> it's slightly murky at this point. I've got a little more work to do on that. But as I, as I know, every winery in Oregon was invited to participate if they wanted to. So they sent in a, a sample of their Pinot Noir uh, to the Oregon Wine Advisory Board, and a panel was selected by the OWAB, and a panel selected the 10 Oregon Pinots that were participants in the event. And I'm not sure who was on that panel. That's the part that's, that's a little bit murky. But that panel selected 10 Oregon wines, and the International Wine Center selected seven Burgundies. And they selected those seven Burgundies. I've clarified this with Mary Ewing, who is the director of the International Wine Center at this point. They selected those seven Burgundies based on uh, reputation. And they selected uh, primarily non-negociant wines, but estate-grown Burgundies. And they ranged from Grand Cru down to commune wines. So they, they ranged across the full gamut of classifications in, in Burgundy. Then the International Wine Center selected the 25 judges. And the judges were all Burgundy experts from the New York, New Jersey area. And they were sommeliers, uh, distributors, retailers, uh, judges, writers, they, they, that all knew Burgundy. So they had 17 glasses of wine lined up in front of them, all blind. And they were asked two things. One, give us the origin of this wine. 50-50 chance, right? And two, give us your three favorites. And I'm the marketing, I was there, and, and I'm sort of the marketing guy thinking that, well, this is going to be really good because we're going to come in the middle of this taste-wise. And our average price is $11 a bottle. And the average Burgundy was about 27 or 28. So I said, we're going to really look like good value. You know, if we come in 10th, we're, we're in good shape. Oregon came first, second, third, and fourth, and tied for fifth. And no judge got 50% on origin, not one. It was a startling result, to say the least. Uh, and it, it had a huge impact. It made the New York Times and made the Wine Spectator. Now, the Wine Spectator is a California publication, and they've never, certainly in the early days, they were slow to give Oregon much respect. They've been reticent, shall I say. When Steve Spurrier took California Chardonnay and Cabernet to Paris, in 1976, I think it was, the front page of the Spectator said, California best Bordeaux. 
and California wines, a Chardonnay from Montalena and a Cabernet from somebody, topped the Bordeaux and topped the white Burgundies. So that was front page, print about that big, and the Wine Spectator. After the event in September of 85, the, the October issue of the Wine Spectator had an article on page six. And the banner was about that big, and it said, Burgundy's Fizzle Again in New York. There's a copy of it sitting right there of that headline, of that article. So the Spectator did us very little good, but word got out in a hurry. And between that and what David Lett had accomplished in the Gomeo some five years, six years earlier, those had a huge impact on Oregon wine appreciation in New York and in Portland, all over the country. Um, there were people at the, at the event, and by the way, it was held upstairs in the International Wine Center in New York at a, a site that they, they're not in anymore. They've moved a couple of times, I think, since then. A couple of years later, they were getting ready to move. And at the initial event, Terry Robards was a well-known New York wine writer at that time, and he was the MC for the event. And it, when it was over, both he and Al Hodgkins sort of indicated that, well, the Burgundies are just young. You know, in time, they'll show much better. And by the way, Burgundy had told us that 1983 was a great vintage. They flat out said, this is a great vintage. And we knew that Oregon had had a very warm, ripe vintage, and we had luscious, delicious wines. So I said, well, you've got enough wine left over. Why don't you just repeat this in a couple of years? And they said, well, well maybe we'll do that. So it was a couple of years later, and Mary Ewing, again, the director of the International Wine Center, thinks that they put together the second tasting because they were moving and they were trying to clean inventory and they, they didn't know exactly what to do with all this leftover wine. So they set it up again, and somewhat hastily. This time Oregon got first, second, third, and fourth, fifth, and tied for sixth. Again, smashing results. Now it turns out that 1983 in Burgundy was not uniformly a great vintage. There was some mold and rot in some areas, and some of those wines suffered from that. But they had said it was a great vintage, and, not, and the wines that were in the event didn't show much mold, but they didn't show the same ripeness that Oregon did. So was it an unfair tasting? I don't think so. They said it was a great vintage. We knew it was a great vintage. Our wines tasted great. Their wines tasted like Burgundy. Uh, people preferred the Oregon wines. Now, that event, again, the Wine Spectator didn't do much about it, but that just reconfirmed. And it helped some of the people who thought, well, in the second time around, Oregon's going to fall down and Burgundy's going to rise up. It didn't happen. So that was, again, a confirmation that we're on the right track here. We're, we're doing something very special and we can hold our heads high even against Burgundy. Again, we have never formally challenged Burgundy again because they have been very kind to us, very helpful to us. For example, the vertical shoot positioning trellis that you see all over the state of Oregon is largely because of visitations to Burgundy by Oregon growers. When we started here, we didn't know how to plant. So we planted with a California sprawl, a high wire single cordon that you see on some parts of this property. But after visiting Burgundy, we realized that in order to maximize solar radiation to the leaf, that you need a different method. So we went to this triple wire or even quadruple wire vertical shoot positioning method that does uh, capture more solar radiation per leaf. That was a very good idea, and that was given to us by Burgundy. That and a whole bunch of other things. And again, David Adelsheim has to come into this conversation because David was one of the 
first who, A, he trained in Burgundy for a while, went to school, and he developed friendships there that allowed Oregon to get lots of help from Burgundy. Uh, other people have certainly gone and done the same thing, but David was one of the first, and um, he, he can't be given too much credit for the things that he's done for the Oregon wine industry. Wow. Um, do, do a lot of the other wineries in the region give credit to the Burgundy Challenge and the other events that seem to have developed um, much of their progression? After I sent you that letter, uh, my synopsis of what happened at the International Wine Center, I had asked several of the people who were involved, wineries that were involved, uh, to look it over, see if they could add or if I had made errors, and ask, ask them to edit and vet or contribute. And after it went out, I, and I got contributions from a number of people, including uh, Susan Sogelblasser and, and David Adelson. After I finished the letter and emailed it to you and to Mary Ewing, and to Oregon Historical Society. I sent a copy to Susan Sogel Blosser also, and she wrote back and said that in <clears throat> the spring of 85, they had so much inventory that they didn't know if they were gonna make wine in 85. And <clears throat> they had a warehouse full of Pinot Noir after the event they sold out in a matter of two or three months. And they ended up making, <clears throat> they ended up making an 85 vintage that they desperately ended up needing. So it had a huge impact on sales. And any number of the early people, I think, know that. A lot of Oregonian winemakers today don't know the story. And I don't, I, I'm not sure why it's been sort of just an event that happened a long time ago, I guess. But there are a whole lot of people. I, I was surprised to tell this story at Steamboat last year, and most of the room didn't know about it. None of the people from California, certainly, but most of the people from Oregon, the youngsters from, youngsters, that's somebody under 45, um, had not heard about it. So it's a seminal event but not, still not well remembered. Do yourself or any of the other wineries in the region try to outreach to developing regions um, such as Australia, New Zealand, um, to kind of assist them in, in ways that, you know, uh, France and other places didn't help Oregon, you know, or California, who seem to not welcome the appearance of a new region? I've been accused by Oregon winemakers, or Oregon winemaker anyway, of not caring enough about Oregon because I go to New Zealand and drink their Pinot Noirs and go to their conference once in a while. Um, I consider that a badge of honor. And I travel the globe tasting Pinot Noir and talking Pinot Noir with my friends who make Pinot Noir around the world. Uh, I, I know of many other Oregon wineries who, they don't go to teach, they go to share, and they go to exchange. Uh, it's hard for me to believe this, but next January, the end of January in 16, the Southern Pinot Noir Workshop will celebrate its 25th event. And I'm being pressured to go, and I, I plan to go. I went to the first, I was invited to the first, and I've been to three others since that time. And I plan to show up for the 25th. And it will be just like them coming back to Steamboat. So I think that the vast majority of Oregon Pinot Noir producers are quite happy to share everything they know about Pinot Noir. Again, if you don't have your, my terroir, you're not gonna make my wine. So might as well tell you about all the issues and problems that I've dealt with, and you can tell me the same about what you've dealt with. Are there, <clears throat> other than the Burgundy Challenge and Steamboat Conference, um, are there any other aspects or uh, organized events um, that in the industry that you were involved in? Uh, 
I've certainly done my share of dog and pony shows in the early days when I was carry Oregon wines. I'm the guy that would organize taking five or six or seven winemakers on a tour around the East Coast and back to Chicago and maybe hit San Francisco on the way home. Um, but in terms of spending time with Oregon Wine Board or the other organized parties, I find that the Steamboat Conference um, occupies all the remaining energy that I have. So I see these other organizations in good hands and I commend them. I, I help whenever they ask me to do a seminar or come to an event, but I don't take an active role. Again, I don't have David Adelsheim's energy and I, I'm focused on Steamboat Conference. Thanks. Um, is there anything that we've forgotten? Um, we're kind of coming to the close of the interview, um, but if you know anything we should have asked or that you'd like to share with us, um, you can do that now. Um, the only thing that generally gets left out of any conversation like this involving myself and Steamboat International Challenge um, is the role that Yamhill Valley Vineyards has played in all this. If it were not for David and Dennis and their confidence in me to become a winemaker and to keep me occupied here and in job here for the last 24 years, Steamboat probably wouldn't exist anymore. Um, they have made it possible not only for me to get to work with this fabulous and unique site, but they've, I think that that, that has kept Steamboat alive. Mm -hmm. So Dennis Berger and David Hendricks, Elaine McCall, Dennis's wife, the owners of this property, are to be given tremendous credit for the confidence to, to build a property here when there was only one other vineyard in the whole McMinnville AVA, and they, they saw the future. I'm not sure how, but they had a great deal of confidence in this site, and it has turned out to be not only a wonderful site, but a unique site. So I get to make what I consider some of the finest Pinot Noirs on the planet. Nobody else makes wines just like ours, and they're to be given great credit for building this place and allowing me to be here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.